0: One of the things that I saw so as an analyst as a looking at a 40,000 foot view of the industry and what really got me concerned and I started talking to processors about it openly is everybody's rushing towards this bottleneck of we're going to produce fiber for some biocomposite some car manufacturer something right I actually had the opportunity to sit down and have dinner with one of these guys who works for one of the largest global producers of automotive matting for for maybe
1: Hey guys, it's Mandy with Global Hemp Association. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining. I'm excited about the opportunity to build a relationship and connect this supply chain. I mean, after all, that's why we started the association. Our association was built on the foundation of connecting supply chain, building relationships, and helping you grow your business. Anyone from farmers, manufacturers, and distributors, people that are passionate about the supply chain, and those creating products selling into biofuels, plastics, textiles, construction, and building materials. And we're live, hello, hello. And I see our other guest joined. I don't know if she can hear us. Remind me her name again. Lorelei. Lorelei. Lorelei, if you can hear us, uh, let us know. You can turn your camera on and I'll just add you into the, the stream. But everybody else that's listening, thank you very much for joining. I'm really excited about this conversation. So I'm gonna do very little talking at the beginning and turn it over. I really encourage you guys to get involved in questions. We will be coming back with the same group to do another great discussion later on i we'll check dates. Joseph, do you have that date off the top of your head? Uh, October
2: 4th? October, October 4th. Yes,
1: Jen, awesome. Perfect. So on October 4th, um, there will be a link, if it's not already, on the friendsofhemp.org website where you can register. And I'll share the link here as well, here in just a minute. But um, please chime in with any questions. Let us know where you're chiming in from so we kind of get an idea of who's on as well. Uh, but Joseph, do you want to start off real quick with a quick intro who you are? How you got into this and how long you've been in the industry and
0: then we'll pass sure. it over to jen sure uh, my name is joseph carringer uh, I founded canna markets group in uh 2019 as a industrial hemp consultancy think tank where we are there to provide a variety of business planning uh, product development support services uh, executive level consulting and uh, project management uh, and my background in the hemp industry goes back to Initially in uh, 92, starting out as a cannabis activist, and medical cannabis activist in college. And in 1996, 1997, I discovered Industrial Hemp and switched into that space via textiles, coming from a textiles background, actually working in a variety of different uh, retail uh, fashion, uh, textile fashion outlets, and moving up through that uh, from... Starting at 15 in the stock room, working my way up to to sales and marketing. Um, and then, um, but in 97, switched into industrial, never looked back, and uh, was in that space until 2004. Took a brief hiatus while the industry was, was reconfiguring and came back in 2019. So I'll turn it over to Jen to do it. A- <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hi, I'm Jen. Um, I'm Jen Adams. I'm uh, with Joseph and Canon Markets Group uh i think my title does change from here here to there but um i have not been in the industry as long as joseph Uh, my background is uh, in community development and i did disaster mitigation uh and logistics and supply chains for a while um and i really wanted to get out from underneath the disaster and hopefully get in front of the disasters and uh Joseph and I had worked on a board, uh, an environmental board for a while, and so he brought me in and I, you know, I've, I've loved it. Uh, I know it's, it's frustrating, but, uh, but I do, I, I, I'm very excited with, um, with the talent that I have been witnessing and, and the possibility of actually making this an industry here in the United States. Hi, Lorelai.
0: Perfect timing, Lorelai. Introduce yourself.
2: <laughs> yes, perfect timing. That was
1: like cute right in. <laughs> perfect. Yeah, we'd
3: love a quick intro. Sorry <laughs> about
0: that. Yep. Go ahead and go ahead and introduce yourself, Lorelai.
3: I'm Lorelai Alvarez, and um, I've been working with Joseph for the last what, three years yeah. um, on this project, doing some research. Um, yeah, I have, a, I have a PhD in environmental science. I graduated from the University of Virginia. And um, most of my research has been looking at um, land use and um, degradation of ecosystems in forests and in um, grasslands, desert grasslands. So happy to be here. Chat with you guys.
1: I have people in my backyard doing yard work, and so that's why I keep putting myself on mute. Because when you hear when I'm off mute, that's the lawn It only happens when I'm live. You know, that's the <laughs> time anybody gets on. So, uh, hi Daryl, it's good to see you. Also, um, well, Joseph, I don't know if you want to kind of start off and where we're headed. Um, Peter, I see that you're logging on you're also from um, Paris. Thank you very much for joining. Um, some of the topics I'm really curious and maybe just get started with is the social, political and cultural aspects of hemp. You know, where where are those really playing roles and where do you see that shaping up with the current industry now and where it's headed?
0: So that topic is, uh, is associated with a paper that uh, I did this past summer uh, at Syracuse University. And it's eventually going to turn into a broader piece of work um, that spans 10,000 years. And, wh- and why I, I started working in that. On that project, um, was to start to divide out some of the myths from the the, the, take the myths and the the inaccuracies and start putting finding what the facts are. Um, There's uh, the the 1990s era into the early 2000s, which in my paper I've dubbed the Jack Herrera era of uh, of industrial hemp is uh or can't that the the jack herrera era is just that it's of cannabis not industrial hemp it's uh there was a lot of misconceptions that came out of uh, out of what the emperor did and i don't believe that there was things that like i'm not a jack basher actually I spoke with jack i say it on my paper he's an awesome human being he did so much for the industry but there are some inconsistencies and some things that were definitely stretched and uh you know for one acre of hemp does not equal four acres of trees it drives me nuts every single time i see that meme um that's something that's left over from that uh the in in the ten thousand years ish of interaction between human beings and the cannabis plant uh the most common thing and the most stable thing we've ever done with it is make fiber um talking about all of these other uses and things it's you know Fiber for cordage, fiber for some textiles. Not everybody made textiles, you know. So there's a lot of there's a lot of claims that get made across the across the board. That um, looking, we need to get out there. And as the industry now is, we've we've gained decriminalization. We're starting to go and uh, work in these academic mm-hmm. forums. It's our responsibility to bring this data out there and start setting the record straight. So that's what that's what the the background on that is. Are there particular particular things that you would like to touch inside of that?
1: Yeah. I'm kind of curious. What are some of the key falses like the acre, one acre of trees, you know, four times the amount of production (laughs) for hemp. What, What are some other myths, right. That we have been told that are still being told today that are almost like
0: hurdles we're going to have to overcome because we're going to have to reteach. Um, so uh, let me look at decriminalization. I think that's, for me, that was one of the big ones uh, you, that, you know, you get this discussion of the, uh, the, the cabal between, uh, you know, Anslinger and Hearst. And it was this big thing because they wanted to go after industrial hemp because it had all this potential to, uh, to do everything. And it was going to compete with the wood products industry and with oil. It's the biggest nonsense of all of them. Um, the, the, and hemp has always had a potential. And in the countries where hemp has done well, hemp stayed legal. By the time that uh, industrial hemp was being corralled into the psychoactive cannabis space with uh, in the temperance movement, essentially, be, due to the studies that were being done with Indian hemp psychosis around 1850, and 1860, uh, which goes back to the League of Nations. And uh, you're dealing with Uh, the uk predominantly was where that that came from by the time the temperance movement moved up into that point where you have anslinger uh who was brother-in-law with Mellon, Mellon was funding hearst's paper company which was using dupont to make their to to grow their trees like so that's the connection between them but they didn't get together and go oh we're going to make hemp illegal because we feel threatened by it hemp was already on a decline yeah. We had we never grew uh, the the part of what rolls into that is this uh, this myth that we were this amazing hemp growing nation. We grew hemp. We never exported the hemp that we were supposed to export to the from the colonies back to uh, back to England in uh, it, the seven, 16, 1700s. Um By the time that we were our own country, we were still purchasing hemp at that point from Russia. Interestingly enough, because Russia made the best fiber in the world for uh, marine applications, which was the predominant usage of hemp at that point, industrial hemp at that point. And what made their hemp so good was that their water redding process opened the fibers so that the um, the tars and the oils that they used to waterproof the rope. Because another big myth that like hemp is impervious to salt water. No, hemp will degrade in salt water unless you treat it. So you have to treat it with all these oils and resins to make it to stabilize it. Um, and, uh, we had actually tried to use our domestic hemp from Kentucky because by the time we had reached, uh, being an independent nation, hemp had pushed its way out of Virginia because tobacco, cotton, all those other crops became easier to grow. They were actually were just easier to grow. The original coastal colonies wanted nothing to do with it. It pushed into Kentucky. Kentucky was still making it for pioneer cordage and homespun. And when they tried to use that fiber for marine applications for the U.S. Navy, even after uh, they passed a law putting a tariff on imported Russian hemp fiber to try to bolster the industry, the Navy still rejected it because it wouldn't hold up longer than 18 months. So this this claim that, you know, and I had spoken with somebody who is a from Kentucky and they're like you know we have a vibrant history of growing you know the best hemp in Kentucky it's like we have a vibrant history of maybe growing some hemp as far as it being the best definitely not and the sooner we stop making these claims about well, we're number one with what we've done and we go we've done it but we need to do it better and we need to figure it out then we can start moving forward with that um so a lot of what the paper's been about is figuring out how to again dispel dispel myths add some truth have some historical accuracy um hemp for victory we, um, Lorelai, we talked about this one. Like the exact acreage was something like forty something thousand acres or, or around that. Uh, but hemp for victory never never came into being what it was supposed to be because the war ended. So there was the, the ramp up with that. Uh, there there's, you know tens of thousands of acres were grown, but it never ended up doing what the claims were in the '90s about how it was this. You know you could even go back to like the idea that George Bush's parachute had hemp on it. Hemp's are really heavy fiber. There's been never been anything found to substantiate that claim. You know, so there's there's a lot of these things that that are really important for us to take responsibility for and go. It's a fantastic plant. It has some wonderful potential. Let's figure out what it can really do. And moving forward from that, let's look at the products that it's done consistently and it's done well. And let's figure out how to grow from that.
1: Okay, my guys outside just shut up a little bit or were quiet a little bit. But I I love what you said, and I'm curious um, from both Jen and Laura Lee, what what are some of your perspectives, or do you have anything you want to add to this Um, specifically around the topic where you said where hemp has done well, it stayed legal, right? That's you know, and Mm -hmm. and finding where is that niche, and and where is true opportunity that you guys have found in your research and your experience.
2: Oh, uh, Lorelai, Lorelai. I don't know if you, can you answer that? You want me to take it? (laughs) Go ahead, Jen. Well, um, I I guess it's where it does well. I, you know, going back to the misunderstanding and how it was just put underneath the psychoactive umbrella has created a bottleneck of problems now, even in... The licensing pathway for certain farmers, the each individual state. So, so all of the the bad information back then that Joseph speaking of has bottlenecked now. You know, even though and, and and countries that followed suit, like Japan, for example, you know when they 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 did the prohibition of it, um, or uh, the same same kind of thing. They they. It, it's uh, the lack of education about it, really. And 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 in speaking with you know pretty much everyone from every aspect of the industry, from farmers to state to federal level, they all say the same thing: it's the absence of ed- education about it, and the um, this big uh, claim that it was this thing when it was not. <laughs> hey,
1: it's coming on and on and on, right? We continue to hear it. Mm-hmm. Lorelai, what 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 feedback do you have? Or do you have anything you can add? Want
2: to add?
3: Maybe. Ding mute button. Yeah, in terms of um, so I in 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 many countries, you know, Joseph and I have had these conversations in many countries like China, um, Russia, Hungary, you know, places where mm-hmm. where it it's been. It's it's like a continuity, right? That that production has been consistent, and it's been um, utilized. the The technology is there. the The processing infrastructure is there. the The things that that are needed for for manufacturing, for production of actual product that's marketable, right? Those those things are all in place, and um, the, those things are lacking in this country, and, and in countries where it was it was made illegal for so many years, um, and and so now the U.S. is in a position where I feel like we have to we have to play catch up, and um, and there are other places where where hemp is being industrial hemp is being done well, right and. And we're not the ones doing that yet. And we have a lot to learn. And I think we have a lot to learn from from other places that are doing it well. Um, and we need to kind of, I feel like in this country, sometimes um, we kind of need to get out of our own way and stop, you know, America's the best, I'm, America's wonderful, America's great. But we do have things because we put ourselves in this, in this position of, um, not being able to move forward with research and processing and facilities and production for so long, now we have to, we can't say, well, we're the best and we're going to just go full speed ahead. We've got to do the research, we've got to do the work and we've got to figure out um, how to move forward in the best possible way. And from an environmental scientist perspective, we also need to do that from the position and the perspective of environmental sustainability because our entire agricultural system is really struggling right now with sustainability. And we have the the ability with this particular crop, this particular plant to, to try to move forward in a different way. Um, but we have to learn and we have to to be able to, to grow instead of just saying, you know, we're the best, we're gonna do it the best.
1: Absolutely. Um, th- so this kind of goes back to like, what is the best and what is the model that we need? And we were talking before we got online about know the what's the end product we're manufacturing for and our processes processors processing just a process or where is where are they going and on the you know all the way down the supply chain so can we kind of move i feel like this is a great transition to talk about securing that supply chain and what that means joseph you want to start sure
0: i can jump in so um i had the the good fortune to to be in montana with with you at the 2022 hemp summit out at uh ind and uh One of the things that I saw, so as an analyst, as a looking at a 40,000 foot view of the industry and what really got me concerned, and I started talking to processors about it openly, is everybody's rushing towards this bottleneck of we're going to produce fiber for some biocomposite, some car manufacturer, something, right? I actually had the opportunity to sit down and have dinner with one of these guys who works for one of the largest global producers of automotive matting for, for making fiber. And we don't produce a fiber here yet. And he hasn't seen anything that's given any indication that there's a fiber that's going to reach that quality in the near term. And not that it's not possible. It's going to happen. We know that it'll eventually get there. But as a person who, who has that, that view back to the nineties of seeing, when an industry was dealing with constant business collapse because we didn't have processing and domestic control of manufacturing, and you saw companies failing again and again and again that were companies that had invested hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So these are still these are, these are still reasonable businesses, but your average company's a couple hundred thousand dollars, definitely not much more than a million if anybody had a million dollars invested back then in in a, in a short period of time. So now looking at these companies that are investing millions of dollars tens of millions of dollars to set up processing to get processing in place they're getting large grants we're at a point where the industry can't afford to have a failure like we did in the 90s with the with the product driven company collapses because of you know we didn't have the processing and we were importing we need to go back and like these processors one of the most wonderful things about industrial hemp is that you can vertically integrate and so whether it's you know IND taking the time to like have one product that's vertically integrated with their hemtana line super smart like great that's awesome processors need to be looking at that so that they're not all rushing in to go okay we're going to like drop this fiber off to car manufacturer x and hope that that we're on a commodities level where things are being purchased it's it's part of the business model, but if that's your if that's your business model coming out of the gate, you're missing. You're, you that's a non-sustainable model if you're not able to compete in the beginning.
1: I hear two things, and then I'd love to hear Jen, your both your girls' opinions. Um, is we've got to be able to separate the uh, high THC, low THC production from the fiber and grain. Uh, that was said a couple of times, and then also the. Um, building of equipment really needs to be geared towards or specific to that end product the supply chain development is is geared to end product and what is that end
2: product um jen lorelei do you guys have any anything um well i i you know but it comes to the supply chain and anyone that i've talked to it's you know, like what Joseph was saying is like, they have all this razzle dazzle and going back to the States about how like we're the best and all of that. uh, There, there's just, there's no mention of investing in the supply chain itself, all of the parts to it. Right. So that's like the bottleneck that we're all rushing to doesn't have the capacity. It's a false sense of capacity. So what, so the, the unique, the unique position I see ourselves in is we don't have to reinvent the wheel with the supply chain. We can retrofit and adapt. And if it, sure, like we've come across some pieces of machinery that need to be created to, to have a better effect on the footprint and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, when it comes to the supply chain, you know, um, we'd had a conversation about the farmers have to be at the table for the discussion. Like everyone needs to be at the table to ensure that it is cyclical and vertical at the same time, you know. And, it, it, you know, it, again, it comes back to investing in the supply chain. And people just, I think it just gets lost on people.
1: <laughs> so when you say invest in the supply chain, tell me what that looks like. What is,
0: what is, uh, where okay, well, needed?
2: so here's so a simple thing. I'll just use North Carolina. And if anyone has information that, uh, disputes is please let us know because this is what I know thus far. But for example, um, let's say a product is like, okay, we want to grow, you know, 5,000 acres in North Carolina to do textile, just as an example. Well, uh, in order to get a hemp growing license, you have to have been growing agriculture for two years or another state may have another way. So the pathway and in, in order to just get the farmers to grow is a huge bottleneck supply chain so investing and it's not even that costly it's it's mostly you know getting these pathways to licensing the farmers supporting the farmers getting them on a value-added crop like with carbon credits and all of that which is a whole nother discussion but simple small little things like that um can you know and is slowing things down can slow it down you know but people don't think about the far or think about those small little details, you know, that's just okay. a s- small example.
1: <laughs> I'm going to give a plug to the hemp exemption um, back to kind of what I said just a second ago and I'll share the link here and see if I can find it. But the hemp exemption is basically putting forth effort of a bill um, mm-hmm. around the separation of fiber and grain that Which allows is great. barrier of entry, hopefully to be less the requirements for farmers that are growing for fiber or grain to be less than a cannabinoid uh production. Well, uh, yeah. And so uh, I, I'm hopeful that those types of things I encourage everybody to get on hempexemption.com and check yeah. it out, support what they're doing, because it really is. We've lost the industrial in hemp, in industrial yeah. hemp. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well
2: well getting back to like like uh when we were looking at the United States, and this was a couple of years ago, I, we were I was actually looking at states that didn't have it legalized, didn't have the 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 uh psychoactive Uh, legalized. So we wouldn't have to worry about testing. Once New York opened up, it was like, there's not going to be, I don't see New York now being a big industrial hemp state anymore. Right. So, um, so hope that that would, you know, I, I, a a girl can dream, you know, like, I hope, I hope that they do that. And I hope it's not too much red tape. Um, I think we have enough work to do in the next few years. And I think we have I, I think we have we do. I think we all have, we have all the pieces. I, I really do.
0: I'd like to, to jump in on something that Pharmax, uh, a comment that Farmax made, because I, I um, it says that there's a bunch of companies planning to utilize uh, wood for SAF, which is uh, sustainable aviation fuel is what I'm assuming he was referring to. Um, but hemp has twice the cellulose as wood growing acres for bio uh, bio bio. Bio refining uh, would provide security for farmers to commit. I do, I, and I want to, I want to partially agree with that, with that comment. Uh, but when I, when we're, when I'm talking about infrastructure when we're talking about infrastructure. Uh, so one of the things that I started researching just to see what it would take to be able to make a, have a domestic source of twine after the DOD RFI came out and we had actually worked to, to send them, a, uh, which was actually was less of showing them what was showing them what was available, but more giving them a background on what wasn't, and the fact that we have a domestic national security risk for the fact that we have no ability to produce twine at a commercially viable mass scale in this country. And the ironic part about all of this, after doing all the research, China's machines use a essentially a yarn that comes off of their, it comes as a, as a result of their textile industry. So that's why their, their twine is so beautiful and supple and everybody wants to make crafts with their twine, right? And then you go over to Eastern Europe and you see the Hungarian twine, which is the rougher, uh, more fibrous looking twine. That machinery that they're manufacturing with is 75 years old. The equipment ma- manufacturers that made that equipment don't exist anymore. And the equipment we need to model after, like, so say, and where this research was being done for was to be able to give the fiber processors an ability to be able to offload their non-perfect fiber to maybe be able to make something like hay bale twine because of just some changes that may have to happen because of the way that hay bales are being wrapped in plastic and it's killing cows. And so to be able to do that, that equipment, to work with that rougher twine, it exists in Russia so nobody even has access to being able to put this together so i though i agree with farmax that yes we biorefining would be great you're going already into an existing supply chain which is awesome because i believe in strategic partnerships but the industry itself where we have things like fiber that we need to figure out how to process and the most basic thing we've ever made with hemp as a species is cordage and we can't do that in our country that's a that's a serious strategic problem and the fact that anybody could come in and throw some money at that problem, whether it's researching to build the equipment or whatever. And it's it's not it's not a small amount of money, but it's a reasonable amount of money that would be able to, in turn, provide Hobby Lobby, Walmart, uh, Michaels, like all of these different companies that are importing that twine product. Now you've got an, a domestic, a domestic s- sales source, and you also have a domestic process for working together. So. Awesome. Does, do you guys, do you ladies, have
1: anything you want to add, Lorelai? well that just
3: goes back to what we were saying before of, you know that that need for that need for the research to be done here the the processing to be done here for us to figure out the the supply chains invested in the supply chains like jen is talking about you know um getting farmers involved vertical integration i mean these are steps that that are really necessary in the industry and um i agree with joseph you know we, Biofuel. That's 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 a great that's a great idea. Possibly, I, there's some environmental concerns that I have about that um, in terms of sustainability. But the 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 bottom line is, if yeah, right now we can't even produce uh, wine because because we lack the we lack the 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 equipment, the the manufacturing, everything. Um, that, that's where we have to start, I think, at the district at the level,
1: right? Okay, so I, I want to give a shout-out real quick. When we're talking about the biorefineries and biofuels, you know, the USDA has some great partners. I've done a lot of research on trying to figure some of this out. There is some, I've done a couple of interviews. If you look up hemp biorefinery, they're doing like biobutanol, protein, sugars, things like that, but small scale right in smaller areas um but again there's a lot of red tape to enter and to get the bio aspect into the fuels. um i i did an interview last week which is really fascinating too with somebody who trades uh, buys and sells um carbon dioxide and the green grass or the green or bio gas is really appealing to the industry. And so utilizing hemp as a bio feedstock or a feedstock into ethanol production is really exciting for the CO2 industry. However, bio, right, is also considering like waste, um, fecal matter, right? Uh, animal waste. And so the definition there becomes red tape that we have to clean Mm -hmm. up because if we're creating a biomaterial that's a clean material into a food grade CO2, uh, it can't be classified as bio necessarily, or we've got to change the definition for clean and dirty bio. And so I think this just speaks to the red tape on scalability of industry and what we're capable of doing and where we're going to enter the market initially. And so, um, yeah I don't know if Joseph are you reading some comments I don't know, if I, you know
0: I'm, I'm wanting to, I'm wanting to give a shout out to Peter uh, uh, Hamondal. Uh, yeah so he was asking what countries do we see as pioneers I don't know if I see anybody right now I, I would I would showcase as a pioneer more so than I would say that there are company there are countries like France like and there's been a couple of shout outs to France and my apologies in the very beginning because actually one of uh, a company we just started working with, who's a domestic producer of uh, hemp based fabrics in the United States that imports their fiber. Their fiber comes from France. Uh, France has been there uh, since m- before I got into the industry. They never left. And I'm really my apologies for us for us leaving France out in the beginning. Uh, but as far as like pioneering, there's continuums and you can you, you can have opinions about china uh, all day long and yes we like i i have not been i've talked to people that have worked with china i know people who've worked with china very closely until i go myself and i see what exactly is going on the, i've heard of good processing being done i've heard of bad processing being done so i'm not going to throw the whole country under the bus either there's technologies out there whether it's france china romania the Netherlands, places where where there is still hemp production going on that we can model after. And we should be looking to a strategic country partners to work with to be able to, to regionalize and develop our industry here in the country, in the United States, our country.
1: Um, I'm interested in your comment too, Fred, or your perspective here, because as we talk about viable markets, right, and this is something that I kind of want to dive into um, with your guys' expertise is, you know, those viable markets long term versus what we're seeing now or today as far as moving material. Decorticators are big enough now to sample out for R&D projects and are ready to invest in tech acres. And they, uh, if they get PO, they have bedding and construction demand for herd to keep them like, making the money to keep it to that finished line, which is different than before. Um, feedback?
0: There's, I mean, there's definitely some truth to that. Um, but at the same time, like what, with regards to the, the decorticating, how are you decorticating it? What are you doing with the stock before you prep it to run it through the decorticator? Some, some stock is, you know, cut at two feet, set up with a very distinct length. It's not bundled. Like when I was, so I was talking to a Hungarian, um, hemp manufacturer, And was just ripping on the way that we process our hemp right now in the United States. And he's like, you guys bundle it like, hey, what do you think that's going to do to your fiber? You take and you roll it up, you crush it, and then you put it through a giant debaler which shreds it. And they take their stocks and they are very careful with them. And they cut them at a specific length and they feed it through with some intention and some thought to it. And, you know, and you're getting a different fiber. So, um, again, it's the demand like for R&D projects, there's definitely – There's definitely the ability to to decorticate for that. But it's going to come down to the initial care at the farm level. How is it being how is it being harvested? How is it being laid in the field? How is it being bundled up? What is that prep? And then how are you storing it? You know, that's our storage processes right now. And and this is part of our learning curve, which is why as we start to figure that stuff out, you know, as a as an industry and people start to also define themselves out into, into those areas. Um, I also think that we're going to need more than just, uh, hemp animal bedding, uh, to be able to sustain the industry because that's, uh, everybody throws that out there and it's awesome. It's a viable product source. And I think it's a great product, but we also need to change consumer buying habits on a cultural scale. So we need culturally recognizable products that people can identify with and go, Oh, that's hemp. I want to use that. Okay.
1: Um, You know, something that was really interesting, I went after the Montana event, I was at another event where we, I talked to Jay from Oregon State University, um, who has been in China a number of times. And what he has seen with the herd is they bury it. They use the fiber and then bury the herd. And so that was very like telling to me where their market focus was and where they really saw economic value in their crop. Does that mean all farmers there do that? No, right? But in perspective of the value of herd to the fiber production, um, it was really, yeah, it's just something to think about, I guess, on on production. And I also worry, you know, long-term, how long is it before the animal bedding market is flooded? Or once we get some of these large developers, you know, large fiber processors coming on where herd is the byproduct or their waste material, at a lower cost. And so uh, those are kind of things that are at the forefront of discussion um, or that I think really need to be at the forefront of discussion when we're talking about the business plan and end product. Can you kind of talk about the you know, development of end product and what that means for consumers and need for consumer to be able to purchase a product in order to scale this market?
0: So um, without getting, I've got a, I, I gotta tread lightly on this one because we're we're in the middle of a, a project. Um, in the 1990s, the Oregon State um, created a uh, an MDF particle board. All right, and it's all 100 percent herd based. And when I look at the construction sector, having uh, had the opportunity to work as a general contractor, project man- manage inside of inside of construction at one point. Um, you go on a job site, right? If you're working with something like Hemcrete, and I'm not, this isn't a Hemcrete bashing comment. It's just, it's right now, it seems like the Hemp Building Association is so focused on two particular products. You've got hempcrete, and you've got hemp insulation. Um, you go into a construction site and you see particle board MDF all over the place. They don't care what it's made out of. So this is what I'm talking about, not cultural buying habits, right? If I have a person who is going to use hempcrete on a job site i've got to train them on how to do that assembly process oh, because yeah. it's not it's not a product it's a, it's a group of ingredients that have to be prepared and then you have to have a skilled laborer apply that even if you're working with hemp block that is a that is a mason somebody who's been trained somebody who has to work with that and you're teaching that inside of a construction process you take a wood based product like an mdf that goes up on the outside of a house you can go on the roof it can go on the floor and you put that together anybody on a job site will use that nobody cares what it's made out of and at the end of the day as long as it's price competitive they'll use it this is how the hemp industry needs to start thinking now these are the things that we need to do is start looking at these things and when i'm telling processors to consider where they're investing in terms of what they're doing for a product this is what i'm talking about if you're not having these conversations and you're just making fiber or herd for the sake of making fiber and herd, and you've got one product that's not that's not able to get into a somebody else's industrial supply chain, somebody else's manufacturing supply chain at a consumer level, then you were running the risk of exposing yourself to failure.
1: Okay, so I, I think this just sums up this need to understand what we're processing and manufacturing for. So You made a comment earlier that, or one of you did that the buyer is not buying U.S. fiber because none of the fiber that they've seen in the U.S. produced fits into their spec or their need in order to manufacture auto parts, right? What What is it we need to see at versus what what are we seeing? What are you guys seeing as far as available fiber on the market? And what is that adjustment that's needed in order to hit a a big volume auto
0: dealer or some of these others so i'll just quickly the conversation that i had it was really about just the the consistency that that's all it boiled down to we need it and i don't have so the numbers i'm giving right now they're just made up numbers like let's say it was like x number of my uh x number of microns in diameter by an inch and three quarter And they need it with a variability of less than like a quarter to an eighth of an inch on the length. And they needed a variability of because if it's on the diameter by X number of microns, because if it's not that it will has the potential to gum up their machine and stop their machine. So with everything is time in motion for them, every time they're stopping to work with a product that doesn't. That, that they could use something else. Why would they take the risk? So and, and again, this is this is great opportunity for us as an industry because it, we're we are fledgling. We're at a we're at a birth point of an industry. So now as as we can start to identify some of these issues, if you want to get into this this area, then know that it's going to take you a minute to learn how to grow the right crop learn how to harvest it in a way that creates standardization and you're going to learn how to make your equipment. So whenever I talk to somebody who's got an equipment, got a processing machine coming online and they're like, Oh, we're coming online in 2023. So September next year, I'm like, great. So your year one of that plan is basically just R and D breaking stuff and learning how to use your equipment. It's like, well, no, no, no. We have people training us. And it's like, yeah, I get that. But like, there's always going to be a process, no matter how good you think you're trained on it, you're going to have to figure that stuff out. And so part of what part of our job is to help people realistically start to see blind spots. Also.
1: I think that that's so important. Right. And that's why I like these discussions. And so any questions you guys have, um, I encourage you guys to drop them in here and talk. And in fact, there was another great comment I wanted to bring up that Bruce addressed around ribbon cutting also. But before we do, Lorelei and Jen, do you guys have anything you want to add?
2: Uh, well, I was just going to jump in on, you know, it, 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 in a perfect world, we would, and that's what we've been building this these past couple of years, is, you know, really... Talking to the experts, you know, the ones that know, you know, what string grows best in which climate and, and what's the quality meets what companies are looking to create a product meets, you know, just a state by state, like the, the red tape is abundant, right? So so that, it go again, it goes back into the trickling into the crevices of that supply chain that people like like, I am excited because we actually have the opportunity, not just for the industrial hemp industry, but to have that actually lead the U S into a, a healthier supply chain, like 100%. So that's, that's, you know, that's my big feedback on that. (laughs) Lorelei.
3: Yes, I agree completely with, um, with Jen. And it, it's it's got to be more than just the, the processing facility right it's got to be on the field with the farmer like what is the the right cultivar to grow what is the the right the right reading method what is what is the way that you know where where is your your um fiber going to go where's your herd going to go like it, that integration and I just i just can't stress enough i think the importance of that integration how are we going to how are we going to get enough acres to grow what we want to grow? And then, we, how are we going to get that to the processing facilities? Are we shipping? You know, there's so much. There's
0: so much there. Joseph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Go ahead, please. I'm, well, I'm reading well, comments.
2: Well, no, I mean, and and yeah, Lorelei, I mean, we've we've had this discussion where there's all of these stop gaps, and uh, on on top of that, like what what Joseph was talking about, like. Uh, whether it's a new piece of machinery, a retrofitted p- piece of machinery, whether it's how to you know on from the agronomy side, there is there's is such a dire need for the, the, the again, pathways, education, job tra- you know uh, uh, you know workforce true workforce development um, that's spe- specific and also general. I mean I, I know that sounds weird, but uh, th- th- that way, because it's, it is vertical it is it's like this the, the vertically cir- circular, right where it's like it, it needs to be both in order to you know I think we had looked at, I mean I know that there's been numbers that have popped up about like well the processing needs to be to be within 250 miles or 150 miles or whatever, whatever it is you know to be you know carbon neutral or whatever. So we've really looked at where are the farms where would it make sense to do a primary, you know, a a primary or pre-processing where it's, you know, perhaps compiling down the voluminous mass so it can be shipped more economically or put on a train or where are these junction points? What are not being utilized? You know, we were looking at paper mills for a long time in the beginning to see, you know, what would it take, you know, to retrofit and do some runs, you know, but there's, we got to get it in the ground also
0: I just wanted to jump in on the comments here uh, Bruce, uh, your long bass fiber uh, if you can email me i I'll definitely go through this uh, I've got to do a little digging for you um with with love, this and then I would, uh,
1: in I would love to learn more about this and I actually have another interview coming up around about this that Oh cool, I Participate paid too.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, Peter, uh, you had commented that the EU is no longer buying fiber from China. And I don't know what the where you will learn that from in the who. But what I wanted to comment with that was for those people that are looking to sell fiber, a fascinating aspect about China. And I we have a, a, a client that we've been, been working with and they've been working in China for 30 years. And One of the interesting things about China is China cannot grow any more hemp in their country because they are maxed out because of their food, their food need capacity. And they actually will buy as much fiber as we can sell them if we can make it. So for those of you that are actually looking to sell fiber, if we can coalesce in actual commodities exchange for an international market, there is a market there and But we also have to create a fiber quality that is usable for them and work within standards that they're they're looking for uh please talk about fiber quality standards testing and branding you know that it's something that we need and being able to figure out how to create some consensus across the industry and i think we saw a lot of companies coming together to uh want to do that when we were at the summit this past at this this past august um and i was very excited by that that there's there is a conversation amongst processors about what we need to do to be able to create some standards and a grading system i mean we definitely need to have a grading system within the industry that establishes what the qualities of fibers are and and what the the usages are for that fiber here in the united states and, and take some industry responsibility for that
1: and I think that's so important for us as an industry to be able to secure big contracts. To know that take an inventory of who's processing and what are the what are the specs or the products being developed from their their facility, so that we know then, you know, if we get a big buyer that's looking for a million pounds of something, we know these three processors create that spec and can potentially move things forward. And I think that that's yeah, either individually or especially while we're growing, being able to diversify our supply chain also gives security to our buyers. Um, yeah, there's just lots of need there, tons. Um, any other comments you want to address real quick? Joseph, did you see any? I see here that, um, let's see.
0: What are you jumping at? Let's um, see.
1: We're entering the sales markets for fiber herd and grain. Oh, in addition to seeing store brands that we represent. Awesome, I wish my Facebook users would show up. I'm sorry that they don't. Um, let's see here. Talk to me a little bit when we talk about cultural, right? And if, if somebody is considering product development, right? We've talked a lot about this need for more than just processing raw materials or understanding where that raw material is going. Talk to me about, you know, Getting the product to the shelf so the consumers use it. And what does it mean to be culturally conscious? And you know, what should we be looking at as far as those products that could potentially break into those markets outside of the wall panel, like you said?
0: So for for consumer goods, you know, you've got you have textiles, which is challenging. And I know that we don't have textile processing um, a textile grade fiber yet. And, and I believe it's coming. I was really encouraged this year. I believe that it's coming. But for even things to be able to do um, cosmetics, you know, one of the product lines that we worked on in the, in the late 90s was a cosmetic line that was supposed to compete that was going into Sephora to compete with Body Shop. You know, those are you don't have to be that that level, but having something that is, you know, do we only need one Bronner's? Is there somebody else that can put together a product line using an oil at a higher level? So maybe using more hemp oil than Bronner's uses and making it more hemp oriented and putting that product out there and getting into a fresh time, a whole foods. But starting to look at where can we start putting putting these in? And as far as like food products go, having food products that if they are good, maybe we can bring the pricing down on that also, because it's when you're competing with Impossible Burger and Beyond Beef. You know, you're going to need to be at their price point. They dictate what the market the market is. So that's part of it. Also, you have, you have the, the the viability of it being something that is, that is easily acceptable into an already existing cultural paradigm of how a person's going to use a product. But then you've also got to battle their price, their price point as well. Like, what are they willing to pay for that um, to do something that's all of these wonderful positive things that we say that we're gonna we're gonna be doing um, And textiles. I mean, I'm a textile guy. Like, I I wish. I could – somebody out there would put together a pair of jeans again that uh, that I could wear and enjoy um, because I've missed mine. Like there was a time from 1990, 1997 to like 2001 and a half, I wore nothing but hemp. It's impossible to do anymore, you know, and I miss like – Eastern European fabric is some of the most beautiful fabric you'll ever feel. Romanian fabric, I, that's what I that's what I wore when I got married, so –
1: Love it. love it, I love it. I I'm the same way, and I say this all the time. I just want to find it. I want to be able to wear it. If I'm repping it and talking about it, but it is very difficult to to wear it to be everything hemp. <laughs> what I of the, too.
3: I, I I think just as making such a good point on um, affordability, right? The that what what in terms of marketing and culturally, you know, we have this this ability to to market and and maybe say that it's it's more sustainable um that that's again that kind of goes back to some of those myths that we were talking about earlier yes and no um, but it, at the end of the day something like like beyond beef right versus um hamburger there's like there's not a lot of difference in sustainability so you have to it has to be marketable it has to be affordable and you're not going to appeal to people to to purchase something like um hemp burgers at three times the cost mm-hmm. right when they have alternatives mm-hmm. that are also sustainable that are also more environmentally friendly than the than um than the beef industry um so yeah i just think that that's like a really great point that we need to to be aware of is that it can't just be about um, oh this is great and wonderful. One hundred percent we have to we're yeah. gonna appeal, it has to be affordable.
2: Yeah, I mean we've I mean they both Laura and Joseph know I am not a fan of the lip service and the and the razzle dazzle of the yes, I mean if, at, at the end of the day, we are actually if we do it the right way we are doing the things that these products are claiming i think it also has to deal with the product too like joseph you know we were talking the other day and it's like i, I can't remember what it was it was like a baby blanket or something where it's like the price point there are there are certain products where people will pay the extra 20 bucks because of the benefits of the actual <clears throat> product in itself There 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 might be some products to where people will buy it like a bronners or something that has a proven sustainability um and then you have like things like uh building materials where you know some may withstand you know higher temperatures or offer another thing where people again may pay the extra you know may pay the extra money for that so i think it also depends on the product too you know
0: I'd like to just jump in real quick with Daniel Delano's comment. Um, should we create regional hubs uh, like M-Hub? I'm not familiar with M-Hub, but what I am familiar with is this idea of regional hubs. And I am I am absolutely 100% for uh, regional processing and manufacturing. And in some of the groups that I've, I speak with in, in terms of the people that I'm working with, uh, we've identified the fact that, when you're working within these areas, and you can actually, if you if you can come up with a strategic partnership and corporate corporate interests that will invest in in putting these regional processings together, that's actually going to be more beneficial because you're you're when you look at it just from the carbon aspect of it, there's so many benefits, but just the shipping. So, like if you're doing a if you're making a construction product, just consp- like widget widget X and it's going to be delivered and it weighs X number of pounds. If you're delivering that product within a 500 mile ring, you're going to be far more beneficial, not only in your cost, your efficiency of of your economies of scale, your your cost of goods sold, all of that. If you're delivering within that region, on top of the fact that you're reducing your carbon inputs to the environment by reducing your shipping. So there's so many benefits to that. I'm 100 percent for that model and would love to see more of that coming on and i think strategic partnerships between processors and looking at each other and going hey i'm 750 miles away from you why don't we meet in the middle and come up with a product development project where we partner and we put a product development process manufacturing line right in the middle of us and we do something and we start delivering our we start delivering our herd into that area or we started looming our fiber into that area and we're processing it i mean the fact that there isn't anybody other than in north carolina i mean i'm sure there is and you can but i don't know how many more there are that's can pr- process uh twine in, or fiber into yarn uh, it's amazing to me i mean why why we haven't found a couple people that have gone all right let's let's go ahead and invest on that together and put that together so strategic partnerships regional regional manufacturing 100 uh-huh. percent.
2: Oh, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead, Manny. Oh, I was just going to say I was given permission just on that point. I was given permission to permission to talk a little bit about, you know, the the regional stuff is is kind of exactly we were we were we partnered and, and submitting a climate smart grant for the USDA. I think some of you are we're all familiar with that one, I guess. But um, I that's exactly what. This plan outlines is identifying key locations in the United States, which makes sense for whatever thing. Some one region may make sense either historically or culturally or whatever to do textiles. Uh, another region may be better suited for processing and outputting a different product. So there is there are people that are coming together, and that that's that's one of the things Mandy that I was trying to convey earlier is what I what I love about this industry is the people that are involved on that level that are really looking at ha- not just throwing pasta on the wall but really thinking about the, the 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 cultural, the the environmental, the economic, the educational aspects of building, you know, regional sites like that.
1: Okay, so we, I'm really excited to keep hearing this come up, right? That this really is the focus. And what we heard so much in Montana is this focus of need to bring processors together or organizations together to build supply chain. We can't do it on our own. The demand is so big, we cannot, right? But we've got to be able to bridge that gap and meet that demand collectively. And so it's kind of exciting. I'm curious from you guys, your feedback on what's needed as far as structure in order for this to happen. You know, we still have, egos involved. We saw people wanting to posture, people wanting to hold on to things, you know, this fear of, you know, well, if I share too much, someone's going to take it. And I kind of laugh at that because <laughs> there's, no,
2: competition there's no original idea. anymore. Right?
0: There's we so much.
1: What, is, what does structure look like to move this forward?
0: There, there's so much room. So like, I mean, and this is, so I, I, I grew up with, uh, with family working in wood products forecasting. And that's where when, when, so when I see like people talking about the acreages that we have and the volumes and stuff, it, we just do not even compete on any level with any other agricultural industry. And as soon as people, we can get that through our mind right now that as big as you think you are, you're tiny, which means that you want to be able to have strategic partnerships with other people. So if you can take and you can bundle to create another. Uh, another corp or an umbrella corp that's bringing things together, the sooner we start doing that because that's what the big industries have done. You know, we started Canada markets group because we looked at the fact that there was no uh, there was no forest product advisors. There was no random links. There was no fast markets. There was no RECI for the hemp industry where you could have an organization whose job it was to collect data analytics, be able to think tank and provide provide view to your, your blind spots to help things coalesce and develop. We have to start acting like the other industries if we're going to be able to compete within the within that sphere. And the exciting thing about that is we can do it in a positive way because we now know that we need to be climate smart. We need to be circular. We need to be sustainable so we can become the model moving forward of those things. But you're not going to do it by yourself you're going to need to work with people. You're going to need to hire a project manager. You're going to need to work with somebody who can do research for you. You're going to need like, that. we have to start acting within those paradigms. Um, And that's, what's going to bring the, that's, that's structurally, that's the stuff that needs to happen. And then also companies who feel comfortable talking and working to it with each other, you know, you get that vibe, you know, that's when you go, okay, that's, that's the person I'm going to work with. And I'm going to explore that with them. So trust your gut. (laughs)
1: Business is still so much about relationship, right? And I think that that's, it really is part of what was disconnected during COVID and what we're starting to see come back. It felt so good to shake hands and really advance relationships face-to-face because it's a, a different perspective. It's,
2: it's well, awesome. yeah, I mean, 100% like I, that's, again, you know, this is, yes, I mean, you have your good and your bad within every, in, every industry, but it's been my experience that for the, the the majority all wants the same thing like the the ones that are trying to compete they're competing with what you know so it's really just you know the the, the ones that are are stepping up and that are doing the, the that are doing the research and and knowing that this isn't going to happen overnight we're in the very beginning of this right so it's going to take a while. I wanted to actually also, uh, uh, it was Hawaiian Ninja, I think, had yeah. a question about, um, uh, it falling under be- being a green product. Should the U.S. government subsidize the hemp farmers like they do other crops? Well, there's lots of should <laughs> when it comes to what the government should do, uh, but the good news is, um, in the grants that I've seen and the support that I've seen on a federal level, on a state level, mostly on the federal level, um, hemp is now, like it even can, you know, you can get crop insurance on it now. So, I mean, there's there, the hemp is, uh, is being recognized and supported and, and I guess subsidized in, in a way like, you know, the, they a hemp farmer or a hemp program can get, federal grant money so so the answer is yes it's it's they're working towards that
0: <laughs> and ideally what i would love to see personally is that we get rid of the subsidies for the other agricultural industries yes, 100%. and 100 we actually yeah. we, we we level the playing field across the board and we redefine how yes. we do agriculture yes. in this country yes. i mean that's so yeah. <laughs> i would prefer to change that yes. and not have subsidies for the hemp well, industry we have strategic granting processes we have we have infrastructure building programs, but we also, uh, in some respects, defund corn, defund yeah. soy, well, yeah. and we look at it in those regards.
2: Yeah, well, well and I'm and, and, oh, sorry, go ahead, Mandy. <laughs> I was going to say, to this point,
1: right, we saw that multiple farmers this year were growing for insurance, or they furloughed their, their land for the yeah. first time in generations, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and it's because... The subsidies that yeah,
2: exactly and, and so
1: it's impossible for us i shouldn't say impossible it makes it very difficult for us to scale our acres when we're competing with unrealistic unsustainable yes. cropping systems
2: 100 so yeah well, I, that that so so to be honest like and jo- joseph knows this and lorelei knows this like the the idea of helping like you know i'll i'll take their money and i'll do the thing but the goal would be to get farmers out underneath the, those those subsidies because that, that like, again, it goes back to that false sense of capacity. You know, L- 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 Lorelai's like, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Lorelai? <laughs> Did
0: you want to jump in, a Because that,
3: that a little bit. So that goes back to the, the sustainability thing, right? Like these subsidies, the, the whole agricultural system is is – struggling right and and it's led to so many issues that it, and the, the subsidies are just a small part of it but we can't keep farming the way that we're farming right now right it it has to change because our, our soils um, are being depleted because of the the amount of chemicals and and pesticides and all of that in our in our systems and and then in our bodies and we have to move forward differently, right? And so, just like kind of going into the the system the way it is and and trying to to fit in, it's not it's not a sustainable way to move forward. We have, like I said at the beginning, we have the ability with this crop to do it differently because we know what's broken, we know what's wrong in the in the agricultural system. We can start to educate the the farmers. We can start to um, to. Get rid of the the subsidies that are, are that are are part of the the unsustainable um agricultural industry and and move forward differently and we we can't do that if we just continue perpetuating the same the same things over and over and over with this with this crop yeah i can't i can't yeah. agree and that's where it gets that.
1: exciting right is we have I said for a long time, I don't feel like I'm in this as an exclusive industry. We have a tool to make existing industries healthier, better, localized supply chain, ethically sourced, U.S. grown, you know, less chemicals. But I want to go back to when we look at scaling and utilizing existing industries, like we have struggled this year with certain areas uh, growing because of pesticides due to residual industries or cotton industry. And so it's, it killed some of our trials. Like we just couldn't get trials to come up in certain areas. And I think this is a real testimony to what we're up against as an industry and the severity of where we're at um, or the need to be able to bring it to market, right? Is it hit me square in the face when some of our areas couldn't grow, you know, and then we've got processors moving in those areas and we've got failing industries already, you know, in those areas and so um, I, again, I go back, I feel like we've got real opportunity with hemp to do it different. And, and the, the existing industries are looking for a solution to do it different because they're going to feel the pressure and the penalties and consumers are voting with their dollar. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm excited. We,
2: ha- we have to do it differently. I mean, getting back to the pesticide, I mean, j- like uh, uh, on another value added thing, because when we first started... There was, no, there was no analytics to be had because there was nothing growing. So we were looking at the waste and what we could do with the waste, you know, like, and, you know, then the biochar kind of came into the thing and uh, into the mm-hmm. fold. And, you know, some of the testing, some of the numbers we're getting back is, is like fertilizer. I mean, yes, the goal is to get off of it, but as an agriculture industry, as a whole, it's gone up six, 700 because of where we source our nitrogen, right? So because hemp has the ability and and Lorelei can speak to this obviously better than I can, but as far as the, the reduction of the need for certain pesticides and, and the hardiness of it alone should be uh, um, should be interesting for some farmers that are being buried under some of these costs and not being able to grow.
0: But that goes back to depending on where you're growing and should you even be growing there. Like Correct. one of the things that I found that that, that I, I scratch my head at is like I'm, I'm, I have no love for flood irrigation. I will be completely open with that. I think flood irrigation is one of the biggest wastes of water that we could have, especially in areas that are prone to drought. And you're pumping up aquifers and you get I, I, you hear somebody talking about how they're doing flood irrigation for hemp. If you have to do flood irrigation for hemp, are you growing in the right area? And is that sustainable? And these are the questions, and this is just my my environmentalist saying.
1: Everything I've seen from people using flood irrigation, it has failed them because just the hemp it is itself, that. it's not viable, let alone.
0: And, 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 I, and, and without going into any detail of the conversation, that there is actually, I, I had a conversation with somebody that successfully flood irrigated. Okay. I was shocked. And, but then even more so than being shocked that they were successful, it's just to me shocking that how is that, how is that sustainable? Like, part of what, if you're again going back to this, like, we have areas in this country, uh, like, if you want to get into the industry, and I agree with something that Peter said, yes, the US has so far to go on so many levels. We have so far to go. Uh, But yeah, that's the, it's,
1: if if you want to get in, another country is going to come in and do it for us. Right. Like, here's the thing. We have yeah. this opportunity, but we are we are up against the time clock because mm-hmm. we are not the only ones seeking solutions. And we are behind I mean, just on the carbon aspect alone on a global scale. Right. And yeah. so yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Joseph. I just
0: and then uh, no, no, you're fine. And then I just want to throw out to Daniel Delano. Uh, Lorelei has great information on soil remediation. Uh, so if you'd like to contact us and have a conversation, we've actually had multiple conversations with uh, individual companies, as well as at one point there was somebody from some department, I uh, 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 can't remember, uh, the uh, EPA, I was trying to remember the department, uh, from the EPA that uh, got us some information of research that they had done. And um, there, is, there is stuff there. There, that to, to look at if, if that's something that you're wanting to find out more information about.
1: Well, and this is another thing, too, when we look at products, right? Um, I'm curious about that type or a, a dirty material, right? A toxic material that's been used to clean up, say, a super fun site. Can it then be put into, say, a railroad
0: tie? Or what We've is been that- asking? So that's a great <laughs> question. And we're welcome to a converse. This is a Friday morning coffee conversation that we'll have with each other and be like, we're going to need to
1: start this because we're already wait, in an hour. Yeah, because that's
0: that's something that we, that's something that we've been trying to find out is like, so there are, I, when I actually, when I came into Montana, there was one of the guys who spoke at FAR the the first day, uh, this guy, David, he and I rode together. There is a certain amount of, of uh, digestion that the hemp plant does to heavy metals and things that are coming up out of the soil, but we have to quantify that. I don't know what the quantification is of the full amount of digestion and what is left over inside the plant, but from what he was saying, it was some pretty exciting stuff. I have his contact information, can dig it out, and we can share that. And yes, we definitely took up a bunch of your time today. He, Norbert,
1: did, so. he just <laughs> did an interview on National Industrial or the National Hemp Growers Co op. It's Dr. Suchoff. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Dr. Dave. Uh,
0: Dr. Think, Dave, yeah.
1: Or Or it's. Dr. Dave from National Hemp Association. Anyways, long, National Hemp Co-op. Anyway, sorry, squirrel. Uh, yes. But I would love to go into that. <laughs> more. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Well, I would love to continue this. I want to invite, encourage everybody that's on. We still have a, quite a few of you that are listening. Thank you so much for hanging in there. Uh, I did share Joseph's contact information and the website. Jen and Lorelai, do you guys have contact info you want to yep. share if people reach out?
2: Yeah. Um, how do you can
1: I either do?
2: add it to the private chat and I can share it or if you want to say it I I'll, can share
0: it do, there as well. here I'm going to just I'll, do I'm going to send uh, a private oh, uh, I'm going to give her our team page link which has okay. everybody's email on it oh, that's from the private chat for you and yeah if you have any Thank you, Any questions want to reach out to us uh, and that's the other thing we're here for the industry if you have questions you want to think tank something you want to problem solve you want to brainstorm please that's what Canada Markets Group is here for and uh, we're here to support support companies and see your blind spots and make sure that like you're successful because i've been seeing this for a long time and i want to see i want to see more success in the industry so
1: same right and this is where i i would love to invite you back so on october 4th you can go to the friendsofhemp.org website right now just look for the october 4th their pictures are not on i actually just messaged our girl to be like you need to update the website i'm telling everybody about the event and their names aren't on there yet Uh, But if you'll go on, they are there. So it's uh, um, October 4th, log in through Zoom, give you an opportunity to actually get to know them. There's a couple of other people from their team that are going to be joining also rock stars in the industry that we've had on as guests before. But I would love to do this again. You know, maybe it is a half an hour update or a a little Mm -hmm. chat we do as a team with one or all of you again. But um, I kind of you know, like like you said, people say this all the time to me is like, oh, you're like an expert in the industry. I'm not. I sit around the table with people like you guys that have been in it for significantly longer. And even then, we're not experts. Right. No. Not an expert. And so no. I I want to give value back to the experience that you guys have plays major roles in our advancements because you've seen things fail in the nineties and you know, what is needed. And so I encourage people to really lean in, talk to me real quick before we hang up. What does a typical engagement with you guys look like? So if somebody is looking to engage or engage in services, what does that typically look like? Or how does that go? It
0: really depends. Uh, We're, we're a consultancy. So like we have straight up consulting projects that we do for some people, but then, I mean, to be perfectly honest to you, there was somebody that messaged us on our, uh, On our forum and said we want a private. We're opening a store and we want to have private label toilet paper. Is it possible to do? And somebody jumped on it, did some research for him, and sent it back to him because at the end of the day, we're going to answer the questions and we'll do the research because we're we we research. That's what we do. And so, if it's something from like uh, something more involved, like if you're if you're putting in a primary processing facility and you need a project manager, we have a Six Sigma black belt. We have a Project Management Institute trained project manager that's available to put together and develop full project plans soup to nuts, like, you know, your, your work breakdown structure, your risk breakdown, your, your, your risk plan, analysis plan, all of that stuff we have, as well as being able to answer the real, like, this, there is no question that's too small that will turn away. And there are projects that are obviously consulting based projects that would require a contract to be able to engage.
1: Awesome. Okay. Daryl, Daryl said, can we go long today? Please, Mandy, Daryl, I
0: mean, I'm
1: all about it. Like, 100% today. I feel like these guys, however, probably have a life outside of Zoom. But um, at one o'clock today, the um, Global Fiber Group is going to come on. Their entire team they're all their partners to have a similar discussion. I encourage you guys also to come back and listen, if you guys would like, Um, I'll share the link here. Also on October 4th is when these guys are logged in. Daryl also said, can we please set up a direct engagement with them, please? Yes, we will do that also. Um, And so Daryl, thank you so much for chiming in. Daryl's got great questions. Um, Thank you, Daryl. Also, yeah, Yeah. heavily involved. I also, during our direct panel when, you know, when we're doing Q&A, I, I encourage hard questions. Like, this is Jeez. how we're I love
2: hard things. questions.
1: Like, throw up some hesitation, you know, that there, there are some reservations. I hear all the time on these, and it's been my favorite. In fact, shout out to John, John Porterfield from Montana, because um, we were on a panel years ago, a year and a half, two years ago, probably, and somebody got on and said, you can't do that that's not happening. And somebody else humbly was like, well, it is happening and here's what we're doing and here's how we're doing it. And being able to talk through, you know, it not happening to it is and then how we get it to market are really those challenges. And it really changed perspective right on the panel or right on, on the, um, On the screen, where you saw, like, oh, there's a solution now that we thought was completely irrelevant. And so, coming into this with an open mind um, really breeds conversation. And I, yeah, I thank you three very much for joining and for you know walking the
2: path.
0: Thanks for for having us today. And anytime you want to get, you know, you want to do those shorter chats and the the Q and A's, we're we're happy to come back and do it.
2: And I feel bad that we didn't get to all these questions, but for those that we didn't get. come
0: back with those questions because I want to jump on those.
2: those. (laughs) I mean, there's some great questions, you know. And again,
0: please. Yeah.
2: Yes. Okay. So
1: here's the October 4th event. I did see one. I don't even know if you want to touch on. Awesome. Thank you you so much. much. Thank you guys. See you later. Bye. Bye.